Hello and welcome to the Savvy Producer Podcast. My name's Phil from Marsden Mastering and this is a show all about productivity, efficiency and keeping your clients happy in the world of music production. Today's episode is a really exciting interview with Harley Eblen. Combining his skills as a cellist, songwriter and producer, Harley arranges and records strings from his home studio in Ashland, Oregon. He's recorded strings on dozens of albums and worked with artists like Case and Renshaw, Haley and Michaels, and Thomas Levine, to name a few. His work is regularly featured on Spotify and Apple editorial playlists, the Alex Rainbow playlists, and Indie Folk Central playlists. And on top of all of that, he is a very smart guy when it comes to business, creativity, and everything in between. We covered a lot in this interview, and honestly, I think every bit of it could be used as a highlight clip on social media. But expect to hear about how Harley uses his room and the space around him as well as a template to get from idea to recording in seconds, how one Instagram post changed his business completely and allowed him to double his rates, how using a light phone instead of a smartphone has boosted his productivity and his mental health, and his amazing answer as to what he thinks it is that keeps his clients happy and keeps them coming back again and again. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, so Harley, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Phil. Good. Um, so I guess the best place to start is just with your story. So tell us a bit about how you how you got into music and how you got to where you are today. Oh, man, there's a lot of different versions of that. Let me tell the short one. So I started playing cello when I was 10 years old, I, just something that I heard and fell in love with. And it's pretty much captivated me ever since. Um, I studied classical music, went through Celtic bluegrass and all sorts of like rebellious teenage uh, moving away from classical music, explorations on the instrument, uh, moved through playing guitar, doing the singer-songwriter thing, which in the end brought me full circle back to trying to bring songs to life using strings, which is what I do today. So that's the very condensed version. <laughs> I mean, it'd be nice to dive into it more. So what was kind of, so you, obviously you're a string arranger and recording now, but how did you get into that from sort of music production? Because it used to produce, right? Yeah. So during during lockdowns uh, 2020, I had been very technophobic around music, um, studying classical music. Like I, I kind of joke, but it's also completely the truth that my experience making music was making strings pulled over a wooden box vibrate. Like musical expression to me was like a very physical thing where how can you make strings vibrate how can you manipulate them that's expression and so once as soon as you like open up a computer try to hit record in a DAW and there was like a technical issue where the interface's driver wasn't talking to your computer I was just like in over my head and overwhelmed so during lockdown I kind of had the realization that there were some musicians that were going to come out of that what I thought was a couple weeks inside stronger in their abilities in career and there were musicians that were going to come out weaker and i just made the decision for myself based on where i was at the time and the resources i had that i wanted to figure out how to come out stronger so i started teaching myself how to use a daw um i downloaded studio one for the first time and like learned everything from like getting a interface hooked up to the computer straight through like how to rough out demos worked from there on getting bringing the songs I had been writing to life. I'd written 50 to 100 songs at that point. Um, and I was like, I want to figure out how to get these shareable. That was something I didn't understand. And through that process of discovery, I realized that I didn't feel the need 
for the song that I was working on to be my own, which was a huge realization for me. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have had that realization at some point in their musical lives. But um, yeah, so I, I started working on finding people that I could produce for. And that was a very uphill battle because I didn't have experience or a portfolio. But once people started telling me no, uh, that they didn't, not, not in these words, but I got a clear message over and over over a several month period that people didn't trust me as a producer, which in hindsight, good on them, that the right call. But people over time started saying, oh, but you play cello, right? Can you play cello on this? And I started thinking of myself as a producer limited to string instruments. And that's really where I started realizing that the thing I was doing was string arranging. And I really had a love and a deep affinity for it. So that's kind of how I found myself there. It was an accident. No, that's really cool. It's cool that kind of the, like the audience or your client base is, or, well, not client base, but people have, <laughs> you know, dictated yeah. that for you and kind of given you the message. And that's how you figured out what you need to niche down into. Cause I think it's something. So many people who listen to this want to niche down into something at the moment they're doing, yeah. you know, a, a bit of everything, fingers in all the pies, but they struggle to kind of know what it is that they need to do. So it's cool that that's kind of what gave you that spark to do it. Was there anything else that kind of made you want to do it or was it just based on sort of gut feeling of what people wanted? I mean, since I was a little kid, all I wanted to do was make music and there have been various points in my life where I've tried different angles into that. And it's always been a deep, like a yearning that I've had as something that I wanted to pursue. So between like I, in my life, I've wanted to be a conductor. I've wanted to be a symphony cellist, a solo classical cellist. I've wanted to be like a bluegrass cellist, Celtic, all of these like singer, songwriter, songwriter, producer there's always been this core drive for me to have some role in the music industry where I can spend my time making things and have people value them enough that it's what I get to spend my days doing. It took me a long time to realize that that was the core motivation because as a kid, it's just like, oh, feelings, music, go. But the process of like getting older and discovering what you want for me, was a lot about realizing that the practice of making music is what is deeply satisfying to me. And whatever capacity I get to do that in is wonderful. And if I wanted to spend my days doing it, I needed to find a way that not only do people appreciate what I'm doing, but appreciate it enough that they will pay me for it. And that desire in myself was the reason that I wanted to do it professionally. Because I, I feel like music would be more fun if I didn't do it professionally. Like we, we all have that experience of like going full time doing this or it's like, oh, I have to re-examine what my relationship with this craft is now. But it's, that's a journey that I'm excited to be on. And these are, this is the overhead, the paperwork, the challenging aspect that I want to take on. I don't really feel compelled to take on that difficult aspect of another job. I'll, I'll take it in music any day. Yeah. That's always been my kind of thing as well. Like I, I'd so much rather just do something I enjoy every day. Like if, if I wanted to chase money or something like that, I'd do something else. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. This is 
not the best way to chase money. <laughs> there was just like, there's just no option in my head to do anything else other than music and now specifically mastering as well. Cause it's just the bit that I've yeah. found I love the most. Yeah. Something I've wondered actually, uh, whenever I've worked with session musicians who are, you know, violinists or cellists or anything like that in the past, they've always been very, very, um, I'm not sure what the word is, but like formal and classically trained. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And all of that. What was it like for you learning to play cello? Were you sort of classically trained? Like, what did it look like? Yeah, so that was that's a really good question. That was quite a journey for me. So I, as a little kid, I, I was handed a violin in third grade, and we had to learn it in school. And I was like, this is cool, but not, not totally vibing with it. Like, I would practice, my dog would run into the other room, and I was like, I don't blame you. This makes sense. Um, but... I heard Yo-Yo Ma, a recording on the radio, probably. I don't remember exactly where, but the, 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 there's something about that sound that gripped me. And so I wanted to pursue it. And the structure within which you are able to learn the string instruments, bowed string instruments, it, the training is classical. And so I naturally went into classical music. And it's something I loved and I... I used to listen almost exclusively to classical music and I have a genuine passion for it. But the process of classical training did not resonate with me. So that's something I always struggled with. I remember not practicing enough. I remember not being inspired by things. And the, the anecdote that I that feels particularly emblematic of this, and I still have written in my Bach Cello Suites book, in like 12, 13-year-old scrawl, I still have bad handwriting, but at the top of the page, it says, don't have fun, because that's the feedback that my teacher gave me. She said, you're too emotional when you play. You feel this too much, and it's getting in the way of your technique. So what we need to do is take away the feeling, the emotion, and the, the joy, and build up the technique. And that, to me, feels like a very maybe not universal, but it's a common thing in classical music. I'm not, I'm by far from the only one with this experience. So it's having the process of learning the instrument be intentionally trying to strip joy away from it is what made me want to quit the instrument. But I still had that yearning, which is why I, I was about ready to quit the instrument. And then my mom took me, basically forced me to go to a workshop with a Scottish fiddle and cello duo. And I learned a few techniques from this cellist, and I was like, I did not know this instrument could do these things. She was playing these like grooves, playing rhythmic backup, basically taking the role of a guitar in Celtic music. And it absolutely blew my mind. And so I spent the next several years pursuing how to learn that. So from the grounding in classical technique and training, I started learning rhythm and improvisation and fiddle tunes and how to just sit down in a circle of musicians and feel my way through something, which was much more in line with who I am and how I love making music. That's amazing. Yeah, that's a really cool story. It's so interesting to hear kind of how that came about and how you kind of got to the way I see you, which is like, the sort of most um, informal sort of cellist they could yeah. be, if you know what I mean. Yeah, like I like to make the joke that I'm the worst professional cellist you'll ever hear. Like in person, live, 
I do not perform well. I get stage fright. I don't have a classical repertoire built up. But like from the DAW, like in my studio, listening to a song, I know how to craft around what's there and bring that to life. So it's it's a very niche, weird skill set that wouldn't have gotten me very far in this world even a few years ago before the technology was there. (laughs) (laughs) But that's exactly what like an indie folk artist or an indie pop artist or any, you know, any sort of independent artist needs these days is someone just like that. Not like someone who's just gonna, you know, ask for the sheet music and, you know, sit there and play their bit and leave. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I like filling this very specific role in the industry where people are often intimidated to work with a string player because they don't know what is needed. They don't know what the person has to have in order to even start the work. And I, I always tell people, no, let's just hop on a call. Let's have a conversation. I want to hear about your feelings. Like, let's talk about why you're making this song and what you're trying to achieve. And I'll just like noodle with it until something works. Yeah. It's there's there's really not a barrier. So that was that was actually kind of my next question really was like when an artist comes to you and they say, I've got this song, yeah, need some strings, what's next? Like what does your creative process actually look like from sort of start to finish? Yeah. So I I usually if if there's any ambiguity, which often there is ambiguity in the song and what the desired outcome is, because there's so many different ways a song can come to life. And I want to make sure I'm approaching it from the artist and producer's vision, not just my own. It's it's one I, I, I can take a song and say, I hear that, but I want to know what you're hearing when you're working on this, because there's a reason people come to me and ask me to play strings. Um, so I, I want to start by understanding as best I can what that reason is and what they're trying to highlight in the production and what they want to bring to life. So I'll take anywhere between a couple of notes. Sometimes the notes are just do your thing, go wild. <laughs> That's always fun. But sometimes it's this point I'm hearing this. I want this phrase to end with an emotional turn that brings you into the bridge. So, so sometimes it's pages of details. But from there, I will load the song into a session. And usually it's just a rough mix bounce. So often one file, maybe two. And I will start listening through and I use Studio One, um, start dropping. I have this little system where I use, I use just markers and I drop markers for all of the big arrangement sections and then markers preceded by an asterisk that are things that I want to achieve in a certain moment or ideas that I have or a client lays out for me. So I'll start a project just with all of these little markers and then go through and just start trying ideas. Um, I know we'll, we'll talk about systems and templates and stuff later, but like the, the, I have a, a big template that allows me to just go and just it's probably 80 or 90 tracks at this point in my template, but it allows me to just start sketching out ideas. If I see that this section needs something that's really grounded, I'll try, I'll start sketching out some low ideas and I have, I have tracks that are set up for that sound and I'll try to anchor that spot and then see how I can build on top of it and then work on getting little counter melodies and spots that need some sparkle and just filling in the density in other areas. So it's just really kind of hopping around a lot and thinking, what does that need? What does that need? How do they relate? How can I make them contrast? And what does like, 
What does a revision sort of process look like for you? Because presumably you send that off sometimes and you've got to change things afterwards. So how does that approach kind of work when you're a cellist and not a producer or a mixer? Yeah, so I I feel fortunate that I've found that the more pre-production work I do with someone, the less often there are revisions. So I feel like at this point, about 80 to 90% of the time when I send a project off, there aren't revisions, which I is really exciting. I've also come to realize that I kind of send this Gordian knot of strings that people don't often even have the tools to untangle. So if there's not something glaringly wrong, they usually just say, whoa, okay, cool. Uh, but you know, so when there, when there are revisions, they will either send me notes saying, here's what I'm hearing. I, I usually ask people to send me an outline of what they're hearing as far as revisions go. And if there is any need for clarity, or I want to dive deeper, which usually is the case in the revision process, I'll just ask to get on a call and we can talk through. Sometimes I'll have the session open when there's like several things, but usually I'll just be taking notes and get an idea of what someone's hearing. The most common revision I get asked for is more, which is always kind of funny to me because I feel like I, I do go kind of over the top sometimes. And I often catch myself and think, I don't want to I don't want to step on this arrangement, but it's really funny to me when I talk through revisions with someone and they're like, oh, I'm hearing in addition to what's here, add another line there or what? Oh, what if it did that as well? And so often it'll just be the process of me going in and thickening things or adding another counter melody or like boosting a, a rhythmic passage or something. That's interesting. <laughs> it's the opposite of mastering. <laughs> my, my most common revision is probably do less. <laughs> yeah. Um, because people just want, you know, they, they like their mix, they've signed off, it's done. So it's not up to me to change things. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we, we sit on not necessarily opposite sides of the process, but very, very different parts of the process. Yeah. That's why I find this so interesting to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because really when, when people come to me, the most common thing, the, the, the most common problem is a weird word, but the most prob, the most common problem that I'm being asked to solve is my song isn't connecting emotionally on the level that the content of the song is asking for. Like the thing I'm saying in this song is more intense than the song feels. And I think strings are such a good tool for bridging that gap because they can be unobtrusive. They can sit within what you already did most of the time. But there's something about strings, and in particular, in my opinion, the cello, that just sits in the heart and is just so emotional and compelling. And I'm, I'm about as biased as you can get on that subject, but. No, I'd have to agree. Yeah. And that's just such a different problem than mastering engineers are solving. Yeah. Like when I, when I think mastering, I'm like, how can we get the most volume yeah. <laughs> out of this? How can, how can we stack this up technically against other things on Spotify? And how can we, present this finished product in the most accurate way possible yeah i mean it's it's still like getting a mood across at the end of the day but all of the really heavy lifting that people like you are doing is is done with that and hopefully it's hopefully it's there before mastering yeah but yeah it's interesting so what um what kind of keeps you motivated and productive every day does it just kind of 
come naturally to you or are there sort of routines or little things you do to kind of get through the day and you know make sure that you're delivering your best all the time yeah so two things uh first there's a leaf blower outside my window i deeply apologize <laughs> if that is audible on my microphone it's not <laughs> um wednesday mornings are the time when i can't record projects for people because of this i live in an apartment complex townhouses and units so i have a quiet studio but not to not to get off track the second thing is that yeah it's a struggle staying on target on task and motivated i think is probably the biggest challenge of this work especially as i just said working from home i'm in the second bedroom of a little two-story townhouse my bedroom is right next next to me i'm standing above our kitchen I have food like have computer, like all, all of the possible distractions, all of the possible things you can do at home. They're available to me all the time. And I'm someone who hasn't always had the most stable mental health. As we were just chatting about briefly before the call, like I've been experiencing a little bit of depression in the last few weeks, which has made emotionally embodying a song and bringing it to life for people like getting inside of other people's emotions. It's been really challenging the last few weeks. And so I think that I've had to structure a lot of my life around routines and taking care of my physical and mental health because I am, it's kind of a joke. It's also totally not a joke. I tell myself it's a joke so I can laugh saying it, but I am not a stable person left to my own devices. I spin out really easily, but I also know that that tendency, that empathy and emotional part of myself that can lead to that is what makes me able to do the work I do. So for me, it's been about finding the routines that allow me to be myself and to feel fulfilled and whole, but kind of put some guardrails on myself. Like I have to treat myself as a little bit of a toddler sometimes and manage my mood and energy which I've come to terms with and it's fine. So yeah, this morning, uh, we are having this conversation. We, we hopped on this call at 10 a.m. my time. I'm in on the West Coast of the US. Before that, I had already meditated, done yoga and gone for a walk in the woods um, and done some reading. So I have found for myself that getting up in the morning and having some structured time that I take care of myself is absolutely necessary. And it's, it's hard when I'm in one of those spaces where I'm struggling to like get out of bed or to really even like clear out my email and respond to people. Getting up and meditating is an unbelievable challenge and it doesn't feel good. It's not satisfying. It's not enjoyable. But I find that when I fall off of that train, I don't my my brain doesn't feel like my brain as much anymore. So doing things like that to keep myself centered and on track, I consider to be probably the most important part of this job. So it's scheduled. I consider myself, I, I kind of treat that as time I'm getting paid for because I just, I can't do my work if I don't do it. Yeah, I can relate to that a lot. Yeah, I'm like huge on habit and routine as well. Like my life would fall apart if I didn't stick to it. It's a, a bit of a joke among, amongst like my friendship group that if I eat something, you know, 
beyond dinner time or something they're like oh no phil's gonna have a migraine in the morning because he's broken his routine um man yeah, yeah and then if I, i'm if i'm here by myself and my my partner's gone away or something i i cannot look after one person i can look after two oh god but i'm like it's frozen pizzas that night like <laughs> yeah so sticking to my little routine every day is like massive for you know general well-being but also mastering as well like going out for a, a dog walk mid-morning to give the ears a rest and you know making sure i have that coffee first thing when i'm doing my emails like it's, it's the little things yeah. that kind of keep you ticking by it's it's kind of the entire game yeah habit over motivation yeah like i'm not i'm not motivated most of the time like <laughs> and and to do to do work that's this inherently emotional at least the way i think about the work and approach it i have to be in a solid place to be able to take on that emotion and dive in and give the work the attention energy and i don't, I don't devotion that a song actually calls for yeah um so one thing i want to ask you about which is well it's not really off topic but um you posted an Instagram reel the other day or the other week about using a light phone, um, which was something I didn't really have. Well, I mean, I know people who use old phones that don't do social media and stuff, but I didn't know it was like its own sort of thing. And I went down a bit of a rabbit hole after I saw that. <laughs> I should get one or not. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more about like what that is and why you use it and how you think it kind of helps you. Yeah. So I consider myself a bit of a tech addict. I, again, left to my own devices, don't take myself to a good place. Uh, I Scrolling TikTok is like these last few weeks when I've been struggling has been a huge problem for me. And ironically, I'm, I'm scrolling TikTok on my iPad because I don't have a smartphone. So I'll start by saying getting a light phone does not eliminate the problems in itself. To me, getting a light phone. Oh, and first I'll, I'll explain what a light phone is. It's between a smartphone and a dumb phone. It has an e-ink screen like a Kindle. It's the phone is the size of a credit card and it can, you can load like MP3s onto it. So you can listen to music. You can subscribe to podcasts. You can get basic point to point directions. They're a little clunky, but you can do it, which is one of the big reasons that people decide to keep smartphones over doing something like this. And what else? It's got like a really great note taking app. So I use it when I'm out. Like I'll, I'll write a lot of email rough drafts, like dictating into my phone. It brings it to text. It's on an online dashboard. I copy it and then that's a draft and I can edit from there. Same with social media scripts and stuff. But so the reason I got a light phone was I had been experimenting with uh, a digital Sabbath, like a, a digital fast. And so for almost a year, I would not do screens on Sunday. And I found that that had a huge impact on my mental health, that just the practice of turning my phone off on Saturday night, putting it in a drawer and not taking it out and turning it on until Monday morning was a truly incredible experience for me. And as I'm saying that out loud, I kind of want to do that again, <laughs> like with the iPad and computer. but. After a year of doing that, I had enough experiences where I wished that I could have called people on Sunday, and I found that it was a little bit socially isolating to do that. So I was looking for a solution that could 
be a middle ground. And I found the light phone and I've been using it on and off for a couple of years now and full time not using a smartphone for about a year now. And I will say it's incredibly challenging. My girlfriend has a smartphone, so she gets us directions places. She usually DJs. She pulls up Spotify, all of that stuff. So she she jokes that I have my walkie talkie and then I asked to borrow her phone when I actually need to do stuff, which is kind of true. But the nice thing is that the default now is that when I walk out the door, I don't have internet. I can't answer every question that comes into my brain. I can't pull that out and find distraction in any moment. I can't check Instagram, all of that. I have to think about the thing that pops into my head, actually experience the moment of craving, not do it or find a way to do it. But the barrier of not having a smartphone has changed the relationship between the moment I want something and the decision to do it. So I've found that to be a really positive thing. I will say for work, I am considering getting an iPhone again to be able to do stuff on TikTok a little more natively as a content strategy. And I don't have WhatsApp right now. And a lot of people, especially in the UK, are like, hey, I'll just message you on WhatsApp and I have to be, hey, sorry, I'm an idiot. Please email me instead. So yeah, little things like that. So I'm thinking about keeping the light phone as a personal phone taking the SIM card out of that, putting it in the work phone and not, not I'm outing myself now. I wasn't going to tell anyone it was my work phone now, not have it with me on the weekends. But yeah, so there's, there's a lot of different solutions, but I feel like reading Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport was the thing that made me examine the problem that I was experiencing. And I'm not identifying smartphones as a problem for everyone. I'm identifying it as a problem for me. But just trying to regain a little bit of that focus and attention and centeredness in my life has been a really worthwhile pursuit. Yeah, I think they're a problem for most people in in one way or another, whether they know it or not. I I was really bad with TikTok probably a year ago, just over a year ago now. And it was, you know, every 15 minutes you're picking it up and then you're wasting another 20 and you can't even remember what the last five things you watched were. That's me. Yeah. So um yeah, I, for me, the biggest thing with that was just deleting TikTok because I, I used it for, I got it for business primarily. Um, and I said, look, I'll try this for a year. And I did. And I, I posted lots and I was, I was just finding that, yes, it was good. Yes, it was another kind of, um, door for opportunities, but there wasn't enough coming through it. I didn't find enough connection on there. And then it was just distracting me from my work all the time. So I thought, this this just isn't for the one job I'm going to get each month from TikTok. This isn't worth all the distraction and all of that. So you bring up an idea I'm really fascinated by, and it's one of the core ideas in digital minimalism. So I'm not going to claim the idea as my own at all. But the idea that there is a cost to any new tool that you take on. So I am so wary when people say, "But what's the downside?" Because there's always a downside. And we are so bad at factoring in what that potential downside might be. So I see people say this with an Apple Watch a lot. Like they, they have an iPhone, they've got the ecosystem and they get an Apple Watch. And I'm like, oh, I could never do that. And they're like, oh, why? What's, what's the downside? I'm like, well, it, the notifications are more present 
there there is an easier access. So thinking about, yeah, there might be some useful information come through, but there's probably more time spent distracted by it than can be made up for by the benefit, in my case at least. But the act of taking a step back and thinking about that. And I feel like another a better example that people listening to this will appreciate, plugins. What's the downside of getting a free plugin? It's free. Okay, the time you install it, the inevitability that at some point it probably crashes a session, you might lose some work. Uh, another plugin in your list of 300 that you forget about slows down your computer a little bit. And then the decision fatigue of deciding what compressor do I need in this situation instead of having the three you know and like and can actually use. Yeah, that is so true. <laughs> it's something I always preach. Less plugins. Keep it simple. Yeah. So your social media, you're doing that all on your iPad. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I haven't had a smartphone in about a year. So what does, um, what's, what does kind of content look like for you? Cause I always think you're really, really good at it. Um, and your, your Instagram straight away looks like, you know, it looks properly professional. It's something that I struggle with is, you know, making mine feel that, that sort of professional social media expert sort of look. Um, so I'd be interested to hear like, what that journey's been like and what your sort of it's been an interesting one. is now. Yeah, yeah. It okay, so two big disappointments right up front. The first breakthrough for me with social media was a producer friend pulling me aside and saying, You treat audio as art. You know how to make high level audio. And I can tell that you do not care about video. Video right now is a conceit to getting your message out there. And they said, your feed looks terrible. <laughs> like, it looks like 10 years behind and like you really don't care about it. And I was like, I, I don't care about it. You're right. So this is me. <laughs> yeah. So I, that was about a year ago that they pulled me aside and said that. And I took a week around the holidays. Oh, right now we're recording this between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I'm not sure when this is coming out, but I, I took a week last year around this time and studied. We just watched hours of YouTube videos like a day and practiced camera work and learned about lighting and got these lights that I'm using in my studio and studied how to get my message across in a visually compelling way, which really pissed me off. I was kind of resentful about it. I was like, I just want to make songs. Why do I have to learn cinematography? Why do I have to learn about light theory? It was interesting, the farther I dove into it, the more I had an appreciation of the medium. And it is genuinely compelling to me. Not on the level that audio is, but I can, I can get down with framing a shot and figuring out lighting and color temperature and stuff. And it's made me re-examine my studio space, not just as an acoustic environment, but as a visual environment as well. So it's also forced me to make it prettier and feel better, to look better on camera. So... That was the first big disappointment that I wanted to share. The second is that I made bad content consistently, a couple things a week for about two years before I made anything good. And that's you all listening. Everyone knows that you did that with audio too. It's, it's no different. Video basically is you, you have to treat it as art. Social media, short form vertical video content is its own art form. And if you want to play that game, 
which I think is a big part of having a business in this industry today. You have to give it the do that it asks. So it's, I'm sorry. <laughs> I hate to break it to yeah. you. I'm, I'm always looking for shortcuts and it always tanks my performance. No, that's super interesting. Now that you are kind of nailing it as far as I can see, what have you noticed? What is, has anything changed sort of behind the scenes? Yes. The first video I posted, once I got serious about it, took a week or two off and started studying that and thought about how I wanted to present myself as a brand, both like in the way I speak and visually. The first video I posted got 10 times more views. And it was because I put a week of intentionality behind it and thought about what I wanted to present and how I wanted to present it. And that moment changed my business. And moving forward, within the next few months from there, I was able to double my rates and I got busier. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was a huge difference. Like I spent $150 on these lights and I was able to raise my prices for each job more than that much. And I was just like, I kind of took a step back after a month or two um, and thought, God, really, that was, that was all it took. And by that was all it took, it was a lot of work, but it took taking that seriously. I had a friend, the one that pulled me aside was kind and generous enough to coach me through the process of getting better. They didn't just pull me aside and like punch me in the face and leave me in a ditch. <laughs> they like coached me through the process and were giving revision advice and feedback on what I was doing, which was unbelievably helpful. Shout out to Alyssa Wilkins, amazing indie pop producer. Love them to death. Um, but it transformed the way my calls went. It transformed the kinds of people I was talking to, the rates that people wouldn't blink at, everything. Because the videos I was making were now on par with the quality of the work I was delivering. Whereas before, I was showcasing myself in a subpar way. And I wasn't giving the due credit to the work I was doing. So in hindsight, it's simple and stupid. But now, now I'm like, oh, why, why was I doing that? That's amazing. I was going to ask, like, what, like, given that, what your message would be to people who are reluctant for it. But I think you, you kind of answered that by saying you doubled <laughs> your rate after one video. Um, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it was a, it was a couple month process, but we were, I was, work had really slowed down for me and I was kind of panicking. And so we made a plan, Alyssa and I made a plan together to spend three months focusing on my video content and learning the skills and getting ahead on my video content to get myself busier. And we were like, okay, after three months, you will be busy. And that ha it happened in one. We were both shocked by how fast the business picked up. So I didn't have time to get ahead on the videos. And I guess it, it means if you're doing all of that, it means that people know who you are already before they come to you. You nailed which it. Which is like yeah. probably one of the biggest things because people only hire people they like. So <laughs> yeah, getting that across is huge. There's a book that's been really influential to me called Win Without, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto. Um, it's a creative sales firm called Win Without Pitching. And I was really fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with the head coach there in I was living in Seattle and like mentoring her daughter. And so I was the next room over from this like 
absolute badass, high power creative sales coach and getting to like bounce ideas off of her as I was starting this business, which huge leg up, I will admit. But The Wind Without Pitching Manifesto is an incredible book. And one of the things they talk about in that book is when you are talking to a potential client, if they do not view you as the expert and defer to you, don't take the job. Drive the conversation in a way that you experience what they call the flip. The moment that they start perceiving you as the person that knows how to solve the problem they're experiencing. Because if someone views what you're doing as a commodity, they're not going to really respect you and the work you do. You're going to have trouble on price, timing, everything. There's going to be problems. You're going to have more revisions, all of that. So I was always looking for the flip in my conversations before um, when I made the shift in my video content. And I would see it sometimes and I would not see it sometimes. After the shift in my video content, I didn't need to look for the flip anymore because every single person that I got on a call with had already experienced that through my content. So they were coming to the call asking me how I could help solve their problems. Yeah, that's amazing. Not actively, but now I look back, I've, I've noticed a bit of that with like this as well with the whole, with the podcast and not being a commodity, I'd say is like one of the biggest things for any musician, any producer out there. Cause it's so easy to just, you know, post a bunch of services online, hire me for this. But what does, what does this mean? What does mixing and mastering mean? What does production mean? Um, I know that I, I really do not want to be hired to master a song and go like i want to work with people for two three years and you know develop a relationship and be the solution to their problem and collaborate and you know i'm, I'm not i don't want to be a you know like i don't i'm not lander <laughs> no <laughs> um so <laughs> that's what i personally look for and that's such a good point because right now a lot of people in this industry are looking at things like lander like they'll take mastering as the example like Mastering engineers are going, oh, no, AI can do what I do and trying to compete with AI. If you're doing that, you've already lost. Yes. If you're trying to compete with a machine, you're going to lose. It's like that means you're trying to find the clients that don't really care that are price buyers. And by price buyer, I mean someone that's just looking for the lowest rate. I don't really want to work with price buyers because like I can refer them to someone who can do strings often more affordably. It's fine. I don't care. I don't need every job that comes my way. I, I want to work with the people that care and yeah. see me as the person who understands them and their work emotionally and can help something connect with their listeners. It's night and day difference. So I, I don't know. Don't commodify yourself. Please don't commodify yes. <laughs> yourself. Niche down as much as you need to, to not be a commodity. No, I see I see like people that are drum editors and kill it just editing drums because that's what they do. There's people like when I was trying to be a producer, I was just another producer. And so people were like, how much do you charge? Oh, I don't think I can do that. Oh, my friend does it cheaper. Oh, I can do this. Oh, I'm going to do it myself. Now, when I am an emotional string arranger, let's help bring your song to life with strings. So like, oh, I, I can't do that. I don't know someone who does that. So it's not like I, I say my price and that that's the going rate. Yeah. 
that's amazing amazing advice <laughs> so should we get a bit more a little bit more nerdy <laughs> oh god i love i love that there's more nerdy to get from here let's do it <laughs> so um yeah i'd be interested to hear well first of all more about that template and how you keep your kind of sessions running because it must be in a unique challenge recording yourself especially playing an instrument that's big and cumbersome in the studio like a cello um so i'd be interested to hear how that all kind of works and how you keep it running efficiently yeah so keep me on track if i get off track there's two two aspects of this i want to talk about i want to talk about the template and the software side and i want to talk about the physical space that i've designed for myself and my workflow within it um we'll start with the template because i've mentioned that already i love i love my template i i have some projects that are holdovers from an early version of my template like solo projects of mine that I'm working on and I open them and I'm looking at it and I'm like this is a disaster and I'm just trying to like redesign all the routing within those old sessions to mimic what I have now because it's made my workflow so much easier but basically I have a nested series of buses uh I have an overall string bus with within that there's buses that run like violins violas high cello mid cello low cello so within the string bus there's those five buses i do i have some presets uh, like eq presets a little bit of grit analog tone drive stuff on different buses that i know accentuate those ranges and can bring more punch or clarity or shimmer or whatever it is uh, with one click as a starting point and then be able to dial it in a bit. So that's been really helpful to be able to differentiate sections when I start getting into a denser arrangement. Like when it gets into like 50, 60, 70 string tracks, it there can be a little bit of mud and I want a quick way to sculpt out some frequencies to let things breathe. But basically the the heart of the template is just I have everything. I have this weird coding system where the numbers of each track correlate to the number of the bus that it goes to. So in the delivery process, the number codes can match up and mixing engineers can look at the multi-tracks and stems to know what they're dealing with. And I used to be numbering these all manually every session, which took, by the time I was getting into bigger arrangements, 15, 20, 30 minutes to like rename all the tracks accurately to make them readable. So switching to this template eliminated 20 minutes of work per project just on that, that export and renaming end. But the thing I really love about it is, like I mentioned earlier, when I'm going through those markers and thinking about notes, if I hear something in a specific register, I already have the track. It's like mid cello. I'm hearing that as a mid cello. Go in, record that. And so it lives in the place where I know to find it. So between every session I work on, I know if I'm hearing something, I can find where it is in my DAW pretty quickly, which is a huge deal when you have that many tracks, as anyone who produces knows. But then going all the way through, when I bounce stems, it bounces, the template automatically bounces the main out, which is the client's rough mix plus my strings and reverb. It bounces an isolated reverb send. It bounces wet strings. It bounces dry strings and then stems for each of the sections. 
like violin, viola, three different cello stems, and then it bounces all the multi-tracks. So my only job at that point is to sort the multi-tracks and the stereo files. So from beginning to end, I try to have my template work for me to solve some creative problems, but mostly just be this big blank canvas so there is no technical barrier between an idea I have and me recording it. That's huge. Yeah. That's, I mean, and, I mean that's the whole, the whole thing with templates and being efficient um, is to enable that creativity. I, I often worry with this that people will think if I'm saying, you know, you need to automate this and, you know, don't use all these plugins, just use this one and things that it's me saying you need to stifle creativity. But it's, it's quite the opposite. It's cutting the corners so that you can just go straight to something creative and get in your zone. I mean, it feels if I'm going to relate it to something that I feel like we've all experienced, like you're out in the world somewhere and you have an idea. If it's like a drawing, a phrase, something you want to write down, something you want to record, a musical idea, a song, whatever, and you don't have a way to capture it, that feeling of like panic that you're going to lose this creative spark and like you're like running up to the barista and like, can I have a napkin? And like asking, so can I have a pen and trying to write this down? That's what it feels like to me when I had to build my sessions from scratch. I would open something, start listening to the song and be like, oh, I want to do that. Oh, oh, I, oh, what sound? Oh, I name it that thing. Oh, use that preset, like dragging all these things. And then, and then remembering the idea. So just having all of this, I can just start listening and working. So it's not even like just the time thing. It's like preserving that initial inspiration. And it's not something that you, I mean, I'm sure you didn't just build this template in a day and that was that. It's something that can constantly evolve. You can constantly make tweaks. It's not like you have to stress and just get it all done straight away. It happens as you work. Yeah. And actually that's, that update process is as big as having created the template because my template where it is now is completely different than what it was at the beginning. As I've learned and grown as a musician and a string arranger, my process has changed a little bit. And so I'll have inspiration in a moment. And it's something my template doesn't have built in. And if I like what that did and I find myself doing it over and over on future sessions, I will, I have a running document in Notion where I just store all of my desired template updates and I have a recurring task that comes up every month or two to update my template. So I'm not just going into my template constantly and updating, but when I have a recurring change or problem or tweak, I will make a note of it. And next time I have the, a moment to update my template, that all gets built in. So changes happen a few at a time and it organically grows or shrinks or changes. That's a good idea. I'm going to start doing that. I mean, my template's not exactly huge, but... <laughs> that running document was a big one for me because updating your template can be another... I had a mentor once tell me, there's a difference between work and work about work. So getting wrapped up in the productivity and efficiency stuff, like rebuilding a template, can often be work about work. That's fun to do, but kind of procrastinating. You're not actually delivering the thing for the client. You're like, oh, this will make my life easier in the future when I'm not a shitty person, like that narrative. So having that running document and having time set aside to go in and make that update is 
another one of those guardrails and habits that we were talking about. Yeah, I like that. This has reminded me of a funny story. The other day I realized that in my in my mastering chain, which is essentially my template, it's just a plugin chain, really. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of things in the session that stay there, but um I realized every time I'd load FabFilter Pro Q3, every single time I went onto that plugin, I was changing it from um zero latency to linear phase. Yep. And I hadn't really even thought about the fact that I was just doing that every time. I was naturally just doing it. And I thought, I wonder how much time I've wasted over the last two years just doing that. Yeah. So <laughs> that was a, just one of those little things to bake into it that saves you time. Once you stack things like that, it's like real like when I when I put a new plugin in a template that I'm not deeply familiar with, which we can argue the intelligence of that another time. <laughs> that's, that's one of my red flags is I'll have never used a plugin, make up presets and put it in a template. But that's a that's a shortcoming we'll talk about later. But when I go in and I'm like, oh, OK, I'm switching that from bell to shelf every time. Oh, I'm changing the, the polarity of that every time. Once you stack enough of those things, that starts to make a huge difference. It's like when you're doing when you're changing 15 parameters, it makes a huge difference. So it's it's really fascinating going back in and like loading a session differently and not having my template for whatever reason. Or like I was talking about going back to an old session and not having the routing I'm used to. I'm like, oh, God, it's going to take me so much time to set up the thing I'm hearing in my head. It makes me really appreciate having that template. Yeah. <laughs> So let's get onto the more the more physical side of things. This is really interesting. How how does that all work? Okay, so I'm particular about my space. It's this is like a ten foot by twelve foot bedroom, um, and so and I've had to do a lot of acoustic treatment in that because it's a it's a drywall box, literally exactly a what you don't instrument. want, <laughs> especially with a cello. Yeah, so I still have trouble with that low F sharp on my C string. Um, it's twice as loud as any other note and i just know how to play to that at this point which is another red flag but again we'll talk about that later but this space has been such an interesting one for me to design i i have a standing desk it's not a sit stand desk i'd love for it to be at some point but it is a standing workstation with my computer my monitors a notepad keyboard mouse all of that good stuff behind me i've got a chair it's a specific cello chair that's really helped a lot of my back problems and posture with the instrument. Um, turns out, as a tall cellist, you need a tall chair. Who would have known? But I've got that and set up against it right in front. I've got the microphone always in position, always ready to go. I have got a monitor, a, a screen that mirrors my primary display, and a keyboard and mouse. And so within one step, I'm going to yank this microphone cord out if I, if I do that. I don't know why I'm trying to demonstrate on a podcast, but within one step, I can sit down. The cello's hanging on the wall right next to me. I can sit down, grab the cello, and hit record on the keyboard at the workstation right there and be recording. And I can do some basic work in the chair. But when I actually need to edit, when I need to proof something, check make changes, do any of that, I will hang the cello back up and stand up to this workstation. And that's intentional. I've built in that sitting, standing up and sitting down. 
as a way of changing my physical, my physicality. So I'm not stuck in one position and getting in a rut. Um, but giving myself as much control as I could possibly want from my recording position has been so helpful because I'm not having to run back and forth constantly. And that I've found when I have to run back and forth too much, it breaks the flow of creativity. But when I stay in position, it also breaks the flow of creativity, like it stagnates creativity. So that's been really big for me. Yeah, that's super interesting. It's just giving me flashbacks because I, I play, I don't know if I've said on the podcast, but I play guitar. Um, well, I say I play guitar. I haven't picked it up in like two years, but <laughs> when I was, when I was uh, recording and producing many years ago, um, sometimes I'd have to play guitar on something and that whole, like, I'm trying to sit at the desk in the studio, the neck of the guitar keeps hitting the desk and then I'm trying to move back in position to the microphone every time I want to record it's just a nightmare so it's yeah. really interesting to hear like how you've navigated that especially with something as cumbersome as a cello it's challenging because there's a lot of physical solutions designed for solving this problem for guitarists for vocalists all of these things and i've had to really craft my own uh one thing i found really helpful in that process with the physical part is triad orbit um i they don't pay me i wish they paid me I've spent so much money on their products at this point. My webcam is held up by Triad Orbit stuff. My microphone, my cameras around the room. It's this interchangeable audio, like microphone mounting, camera mounting, and lighting mounting system. Everything's on quick release, but it's all cast iron and really solidly built. So I've got a microphone on a swivel head on a Triad Orbit stand, and I built a... I'm weird. So I ripped apart an old laptop, bought a control board on eBay and turned the old screen from the laptop into a monitor that I use at my recording position. But I like used some triad orbit parts to jury rig uh, a fitting to get that on the microphone stand as well. So I'm trying to collapse everything down into one physical footprint because I have a small space. And to be able to move around it and have it move with me, but be solid. So it's been, it's a little by little incremental thing that I'm allowing to grow with me as I find my workflow and process. And at this point, now that I'm using more, I call it viola, technically it's an alto violin, which is just an oversized viola with an end pin. Um, I had never heard of it before a couple months ago. They're weird. This one isn't well-made either. That's a whole other story. The luthier just like gave it to me and said, I don't care if it gets rained on and sent me out into the rain with it. But I'm absolutely in love with it, even though it's a piece of trash, but I've got that hanging right behind me. So it's right next to my cello and I've got a violin hanging above it. So I'm trying to get everything within reach. So again, that barrier between an idea and the moment it's getting recorded is lessened. I feel like my, my whole process and the templates so of software and physical in my studio space is about just facilitating the creative ideas. So really the, the largest barrier now to getting started on a new project. My whole workflow from beginning to end, I will be standing at this workstation, open a session, takes a moment for all the, my template to load because there's some fancy routing and some plugins, but maybe 30 seconds to open that template. Studio one's great with that kind of thing. Once it's open, I drag my client's file into the track I already have set aside for it. I 
find the tempo. If they didn't give me the tempo, do that. I drag the file into the chord track of Studio One. It analyzes the chords, and so I have a chord chart ready to go. Uh, and I start listening through and try to knock out the markers that I was talking about. So verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, and you know, sparkly, shimmery here, or whatever notes or emotions a client gave me or things I'm hearing. I usually don't make it all the way through that process because at some point I have an idea and I just hit record. I sit down, grab the cello and start playing. And I'm not trying to make it sound pretty. I'm just trying to rough things out. But so usually within two or three minutes of starting a project, I have an idea down. So it's really in service of that, lessening the gap between idea and result. It's huge. You should, uh, this has made me think you should do a course for the self-recording string arranger. <laughs> <laughs> all, all three of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and talk about uh, niche. There's like, yeah. know, like a couple other people. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess moving on to kind of the final topic of the show, I guess, which I'm sure we've already touched on a lot throughout the episode, but what do you think it is that keeps your clients happy and keeps them coming back to you again and again and sort of has built your, your reputation? I think about scalability a lot in this business. I think of like, we've talked a lot about automating and making things as simple as possible. Uh, the, in keeping my clients happy, I do not think about scalability. I do not think about how much time something takes. I do not think about whether it's sustainable or not. I do my best to do whatever a song needs, to do whatever it takes to resolve an issue that comes up, do whatever it takes to make a client feel heard, respected, comfortable, and trusting enough to hand me a piece of art that they care about so deeply that they want to go above and beyond for, and to send money to a stranger on the internet. I take it really seriously when someone can even considers hiring me because that level of trust is huge. Like I've hired people to work on my music before. It's terrifying. So I don't think about scalability or efficiency in keeping my clients happy. If there is something that happened, I allow myself to look back and say, that doesn't feel like something I can keep doing. How can I improve all these other systems we've talked about in the future? How can I make, how can I set myself and my clients and my future projects up well enough that I can work to mitigate or avoid that problem I'm experiencing or that I did experience? I know that I have that kind of hindsight on projects and that I kind of do a little bit of a postmortem when something doesn't go the way I hoped. So I allow myself to just take care of the projects and the people that I'm working with. And I think that's the biggest thing. And that's advice that goes against it. A lot of advice I've been given. But it's, it's what has really built friendships for me with the people that I work with and allowed for things to like move beyond just strings. Like I've had people hire me for strings and then come back and say, do you produce? And I'm like, well, not really. And they say, 
okay, I don't care. Can I have a production portfolio? And then hire me as a producer. Um, so it's, it, it always comes back around. It pays dividends having people happy. And so I see that as kind of the most sacred part of the job. Like I'm here to serve the people that ask me to support their work. So that's my priority. Yeah, that's a great answer. I love that you highlighted um, the song as well, you know, that they've, they've poured everything into so far because it's so easy to think, okay, I need to get this mix sounding punchy or whatever. And, and then I need to get a good review at the end. And I hope they like it. And I hope they, you know, do they want to hire a stranger on the internet? Yes. But what about the song that they, yeah. they've probably had in their head for maybe a couple of years that's about something like deeply, deeply personal? What about that? Yeah. And that's the thing you need to keep in mind all the time, even though it can be hard when you're kind of a technical person and you're thinking about all those things that you want to do creatively. Totally. Just need to remember who's hiring you and why and what with. Yeah. Like I, I take every job that I agree to do really seriously. Like there's a, I think about this a lot. There was someone, I did a podcast interview, someone listened and for some reason felt inspired and wrote a song for the first time in years. They took that song they wrote, sent it to me and thanked me for the, whatever role I had played in making it happen. And they asked if I would play strings on it. This person wasn't looking to release professionally. They weren't looking to make a name for themselves. They weren't looking to make a return on their investment. Um, but it was some, uh, something they had written for a family member that had just gotten a terminal diagnosis. And it reminded me of why I do what I do. So I sat down and I spent my birthday recording this song. And it was the best birthday I've ever had. Getting to, like, I, I cried. I cried so much. The song was beautifully written. It, they poured themselves into it and getting to be such an intimate part of it. And knowing that it was something that they were trying to share with this person before they died to let them know that they're cared for. Like, I know, I feel fortunate that he asked me to be a part of that and that I know the whole story. But I am also aware that, especially in the songs that I get as a string arranger, it's not always a part of someone's everyday process. It's not the first thing they think of. Like, they're not thinking, I need a string arranger for every song on this album. They're like, no, that one needs this. And so I try to be really cognizant that even if I don't know the story, even if I don't know why, that often I'm being handed a gift. Like, I am being handed something that is especially meaningful for people. And that getting to be a part of that is really a privilege. And that once contracts, negotiations, payment, all of that is taken care of. It doesn't matter. I set all of that aside. The song is what's important. And like I, the day I lose sight of that is the day I need to stop doing this. Yeah, that's, that's massive. I mean, it feels like we've reached a crescendo. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, though, like people who are doing this, we spend most days stressing like, about have I got enough clients? Yeah. Have I got too many clients? There's too much work. I'm snowed under. 
does this plugin, you know, does this plugin do what I want? Do I need this plugin? Do I need to invest in an Atmos room? All these silly things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, it's something like that that actually is why we do this and is the thing that matters the most. I laugh because that's me too. I yeah. <laughs> I was scrolling plugin deals this morning. Like I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I think we need that kind of we need that last sort of five minutes of the podcast every morning before we start our day <laughs> to remind us. That's that's what I try to give myself. Read, meditate, go for a walk and center myself and why I do this work. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, that's probably a wonderful place to wrap up. So is there anywhere that you want to send people if they want to get in touch with you or Yeah, come say hi. Um my website is harleyeblen.com, Harley like the motorcycle, E B L E N dot com. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Harley Eblen, TikTok at Harley Eblen. Uh, shoot me an email, send me a DM on Instagram. I would love to hear what you're working on, talk about strings. You can probably tell I'm so nerdy about this and I love getting to talk music with people. So don't don't be afraid to reach out. Amazing. Well, that, all of that will be in the show notes. So with that, thanks so much for coming on. It's been amazing. All right. Thank so you. I hope you enjoyed listening to that interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Before you go, I just wanted to make a really quick offer as well. So you want everything that leaves your studio to sound incredible, but sometimes that final 10% can leave you banging your head against the wall. Maybe you find yourself in a never-ending cycle of making one last little tweak over and over again. And before you know it, you've been in the studio for 10 hours, you're surrounded by half-empty coffee cups and your eyes are bloodshot. Or perhaps you're dead happy with your mixes, but you just need a reliable, thoughtful, fresh set of ears at the mastering stage to get them over the finish line. Either way, I'd love to help. I run a simple and collaborative mastering service, putting you, your production and your artist's vision at the centre of attention. I bring peace of mind to that final stage of the process and make sure everybody walks away with a record that they adore. So if you're tired of mastering your own mixes or you're craving a more personal touch than the big name mastering houses can offer, I'd love to team up with you. If you'd like a free mastering sample, be it on an old project or something current, drop it over to me via my website or email me on phil at marsdenmastering.com. That's phil at marsdenmastering.com. And we can get the ball rolling.